And as you're finding your seat and getting settled, you can be turning to Acts chapter 1. We return to our study in the book of Acts this week after being off for the REACH conference last week. But man, truly, what a great conference that was. I, you know, I say week, I know it was like three days, but you know, what a great conference that was. And if you were here, I think you know that. I, I think God spoke to a lot of people and, and um, not only were we an encouragement to our out-of-town guests, they were certainly an encouragement to me and encouragement to us, and, and uh, God spoke to us. God spoke to us clearly, and then, and then um, obviously with the offering, man, I, I want to reiterate, you know, just what Jeff said and just how thankful to the Lord we are, um, thankful to the Lord for his faithfulness, thankful to the Lord for your faithfulness, and, and we'll, as, as we spend that money, you know, we'll give you updates. Jeff, will, is, like he said, he's going to be in Hungary in just a couple weeks, and you know, you'll get a report on that when, when he returns, and and uh, the pastor's training, and and as we look to expand that, we'll obviously uh, keep you guys updated on all that and, and involved with us in that. So we're we're really excited about that, and 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 like I, like Jeff said in the announcements, uh, we have the discipleship conference coming up. So we had our personal missions conference here for us, and then as a fellowship. We have our discipleship conference coming up in just a couple of weeks, and so we have a lot going on, both in the church and, and in the fellowship that we're a part of, the Living Faith Fellowship, and, and that's a good thing. I, I, I believe we have momentum. I hope you could feel that, too. I think it's a, it's a cool time. There's a lot of craziness going on in the world, which, you know, always, always makes me think it's a really exciting time to be alive. But we're coming off of a high, like the REACH conference, and, and dealing with everything that God was stirring in your heart, I know, stirring in my heart. The danger in that is to then run ahead of God and in our excitement, in our exuberance for all that God's doing, to run ahead of Him and not wait on His timing for His plan. And that applies to us certainly as a church. It applies to you individually. And, and that is the exact situation in which we find the apostles as we pick up the story in Acts chapter 1 where we left off a couple weeks ago. It's, it's, you know, maybe a sad time for them, but it's certainly a very exciting time. There's interesting time in the world. Uh, a lot was going on, and, and, and in that last message that we were in the book of Acts, we made it through verse 11, and that was the end of those, you know, 40 days of testing, so to speak, after Jesus' resurrection, that he was revealing himself to people, and he was teaching the apostles. Jesus had been with them over those 40 days, he was investing in them and teaching them what it meant to be a witness for him now moving forward. Then we saw the ascension, like in verse 9 through 11, you see the actual ascension. He ascends to the third heaven. We looked at that miracle, what it meant for them, what it means for us today. We now have an advocate, an intercessor sitting at the right hand of God the Father. It's an amazing thing. But for those apostles, just put yourself in their place. This guy that they had spent the last three and a half years with, he's now gone. Their Messiah was gone, and, but he had given them a mission. And they had a mission to complete, but they couldn't start quite yet. They actually had to wait another ten days before they received the Holy Spirit, the, the permanent indwelling of the Holy Spirit and the power that came along with that. At Pentecost, we remember the words of Jesus to his apostles in Acts 1-4, and being assembled together with them, commanded them, this is Jesus speaking, that they should not depart from Jerusalem, but wait for the promise of the Father, which saith he, ye have heard of me. And, and I want you to understand a couple things with respect to this time period. They had to wait, this was true, it was necessary for them even though the apostles had received the Holy Spirit from Jesus. And that happened at their first encounter with him after his resurrection. I'm gonna, we're going to run through just a couple of verses here. In John chapter 20, verses 21 and 22, this is obviously after the resurrection. Then Jesus said to them again, Peace be unto you, as my Father has sent me, even so send I you. Right? He's, he's sending them out uh, for the mission. And when he had said this, he breathed on them. And saith unto them, Receive ye the Holy Ghost. So they received the Holy Ghost there, but, but this, you have to understand, and some people are confused about this, this, this wasn't Pentecost. 
And there was no permanent indwelling of the Holy Spirit before Pentecost. There was no sealing of the Spirit that we have today. In John chapter 7, verses 38 and 39 kind of explains this. says, He that believeth on me, on Jesus, as the Scripture has said, out of his belly shall flow rivers of living water. But this spake he of the Spirit, which they that believe on him should receive. For the Holy Ghost was not yet given because that Jesus was not yet glorified. And his glorification came at his ascension. And we don't have a time to do a deep study, but look at what 1 Timothy 3.16 says. It says, without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifest in the flesh, justified in the spirit, seen of angels, preached unto Gentiles, believed on in the world, received up into what? Into glory. Received up into glory. And, and when was Jesus received up? According to Mark 16.19, that was at his ascension. So then after the Lord had spoken unto them, he was received up into heaven and sat on the right hand of God. And there are many other verses that we could use to prove this point, but, but for the sake of time, we'll leave it here. So that means the apostles in John 20 would have received the Holy Spirit in the same way an Old Testament saint would have received him. And in the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit could come and go and would come and go. 1 Samuel 16 is a great example of that. In verse 13 of 1 Samuel 16, the Holy Spirit enters David, and in verse 14, he exits Saul. It says, Then Samuel took up the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brethren. And the Spirit of the Lord came upon David from that day forward. So Samuel rose up, went to Ramah, but the Spirit of the Lord departed from Saul, and an evil spirit from the Lord troubled him. And that's how it works until Pentecost, and we'll see that, we'll see Pentecost next week uh, in great detail when we get to chapter 2. So even though the apostles had received the Holy Spirit, they still had to wait for the promise, because he could have left them. They weren't sealed. There was still no body of Christ for them to enter. They hadn't been baptized by the Spirit, and if you don't know what all, what all everything I just said, if you don't know what that means, it's okay. Just keep coming. Keep listening. Keep learning, right? We talked about this when we, when we set up this book. There's, there's some things that we're going to go through in this book doctrinally that, that all of you, you know, it may take some time to put together, but we'll keep, we'll keep teaching and we'll keep explaining as we go along. All you really need to understand is the apostles had to wait for the promise, the promise of power, the baptism that came along from the Holy Spirit as outlined in John 16, 7, when Jesus said, nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it's expedient for you that I go away. For if I go not away, the Comforter will not come unto you. But if I depart, I will send him unto you. And that's exactly what they did, but not quite yet. It's exactly what, what Jesus did, but just not quite yet. They were waiting. But as they were waiting, we see them take some very practical steps that, that, that we can learn from today. There's a very practical lesson. I, you know, we'll, we'll address some interesting things, I think, some cool things in Scripture. This is a very simple, very practical lesson, but I think it's something that we need today because I think many of us often find ourselves in a position of waiting, waiting on an answer from the Lord, waiting on a life change, waiting on God to move, waiting on God to work and your life or in your situation or in your kid's life or whatever it might be. And what we're going to learn from these apostles is they, is they did not just sit idly doing nothing while they were waiting, but they also didn't get ahead of God. So there's some great lessons in the passage for us this morning that, that we're going to look at. And we're going to be studying all the way down through the end of chapter 1. So we're going to pick it up in verse 12. We're going to go down through verse 26. And again, it's just this, this, this interesting waiting period after Jesus' ascension, but before the promise of the Holy Spirit. So let's read it together. We're going to pick it up in verse 12. And then they, speaking of the apostles, then they returned unto Jerusalem from the Mount called Olivet, which is from Jerusalem, a Sabbath day journey. And when they were come in, they went up in an upper room where abode both Peter and James and John and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James, the son of Alphaeus, the son of Zelotes, and Judas, the brother of James. 
These all continued with one accord in prayer and supplication with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brethren. In those days, Peter stood up in the midst of his disciples and said, The number of names together were about 120. Men and brethren, this scripture must needs have been fulfilled, which the Holy Ghost by the mouth of David spake before concerning Judas, which was guide to them that took Jesus. For he was numbered with us and had obtained part of this ministry. Now this man purchased a field with the reward of iniquity, and falling headlong, he burst asunder in the mist, and all his bowels gushed out. There's some, there's some frank honesty in the Bible. And it was known unto all the dwellers at Jerusalem, and so much as that field is called in their proper tongue, Alceldama, that is to say, the field of blood. For it is written in the book of Psalms, Let his habitation be desolate, and let no man dwell therein, and his bishopric let another take. Wherefore, of these men which have accompanied with us all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John unto the same day that he was taken up from us, must one be ordained to be a witness with us of his resurrection. And they appointed two, Joseph called Barsabas, who was surnamed Justice, and Amathias. And they prayed and said, Thou, Lord, which knowest the hearts of all men, show whether of these two thou hast chosen they may take part of this ministry and apostleship from which Judas by transgression fell, that he might go to his own place. And they gave forth their lots, and the lot fell upon Matthias, and he was numbered with the eleven apostles. All right, let's pray. Let's ask the Lord to show us exactly what it is we need to hear from him this morning. Dear Lord, uh, we do come to you today, and, and we come to you very thankful. Thankful for all that we experienced last week. Um, thankful for the generosity of of you that then comes and, and sheds through us, and, and just the, we want to rejoice in the offering um, that was taken. And Lord, I rejoice in, in the work you did in people's hearts as well. And so uh, as, as, as you stirred, Lord, sometimes there's some anxiousness, and there's um, sometimes just the, an unwillingness to really wait on you and your timing for things. And so, Lord, I pray that this message is, is certainly timely, and I, I pray that you use it in our hearts, Lord, just to, 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 to place us where we need to be with you and exactly what it is we need to be doing as, as we are, find ourselves in times of waiting. Lord, I pray that everything that is said is true to your word. I pray that it's honoring and glorifying to you. And be glorified, Lord, with this whole service. I do pray it is a sweet savor to you as we worship you in it. Lord, we love you. We ask it in Jesus' precious name. Amen. So here we find the apostles and, and the other disciples of Jesus, just in a, in a very interesting situation, just a completely unique time in history. And they've been given their commission, they're to go, Jesus just left, but not yet. And they're waiting, but, but here's the thing I want you to understand from the beginning. While they were waiting, they were still active. And this gives us a couple of points I put in your outline sheet there, just very simply, a couple points on waiting in the Lord. Because first of all, waiting on the Lord in the Bible isn't a bad thing, right? Like when I have to wait on my family, I view that as a bad thing. I'm very impatient with that. But waiting on the Lord in the Bible isn't a bad thing. Lamentations 3 verse 25 says, The Lord is good unto them that wait for him, to the soul that seeketh him. So it's not bad, Right? Why isn't it bad? Because God's perfect. God's timing is perfect. It's not always our timing, but his timing is perfect. He knows what he's doing. So it's not a bad thing. And then second, it's also not a passive thing. And so when we talk about waiting on the Lord, I, I want you to think of it like this. You wait on the Lord like a waiter or a server at a restaurant. Think about that. So you don't want to get out in front of or annoy the customer but you're paying attention, and you're there, and you're ready when they need you. And that's exactly how we're to wait on Jesus. Lamentations 3.25, we just looked at, says, The Lord's good unto them that wait for him, to the soul that, what? Seeketh him. That's an active. That's something active. We see this aspect of waiting in verses like Isaiah 40, verse 31 as well. Very popular verse, but they that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength, and they shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. But, but look at how God describes that type of waiting. It involves strengthening and running and walking. It isn't passive. It isn't not, it's, not, it's not doing nothing. 
So if, if that's all true, you might be asking, what does it include? Well, you're asking good questions this morning. And we find some keys waiting on waiting in our text this morning. And it's all based on, this is where it starts, it's all based on simple obedience. Simple obedience to the Lord. Because when we find the apostles in the text, we immediately see them obeying the Lord. He had told them back in verse 4 to not depart from Jerusalem. Okay, so they're heading back. They're heading back to Jerusalem. And they weren't far. That's what the Bible means in verse 12 when it said they were a Sabbath's day journey. That doesn't mean they traveled a day's journey. It means they went as far as they were allowed to travel on the Sabbath day. You see, the Sabbath day was a sacred day. We're still sort of under, not sort of, we're still under Old Testament rules here. And the Sabbath day was a sacred day, a day of no work. And the law laid out specifics of the Sabbath, including how far they could move about on the Sabbath day. And if you compare Exodus 16.29 with Numbers 35.5, you will find that the distance they could travel on the Sabbath day was 2,000 cubits, or about a half to three-quarters of a mile. And, and, and this was just so the people in the outskirts could make it to the temple. Right? That was what they were allowed to move about, so everybody could make it to the temple. So that's all they traveled. And they were just on the Mount of Olives, right outside the city. So they traveled from the Mount into Jerusalem and into what the Bible calls an upper room. And we can't say for sure, but this was probably the same upper room where the Last Supper was held and where Jesus appeared to his disciples after the resurrection. It's an important place, certainly in history. And it's in this upper room that we find the keys to waiting on the Lord that the apostles displayed. And the first key we notice is that they were partnering in prayer. All right, that's our first point. They were partnering in prayer. Look again at verses 12 through 14. Then returned they unto Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is from Jerusalem, a Sabbath day journey. And when they were come in, they went up into an upper room where abode both Peter and James and John and Andrew and Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James, the son of Alphaeus, and Simon, Zelotes, and Judas, the brother of James. And these all continued with one accord in prayer and supplication with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brethren. You see, as soon as they get to the upper room, they all gather together and they start praying. And listen, this is very simple. But if you are waiting, if you find yourself in a situation in your life where you are waiting on the Lord, you better be praying. You better be praying. That needs to be the first thing you do. That is, that's just the main lesson. Take that. If you don't take anything else, take that away. And it wasn't only the 11 remaining apostles. Verse 15 says, the next verse says, that there were about 120 up there. And it included women. It included um, Mary, Jesus' mother. And, and with respect to this point, there's a key phrase that we see in verse 14. And that phrase is this, with one accord. With one accord. And it's interesting because that phrase is found 12 times in the Bible. And 11 of those 12 are in the book of Acts. We're going we're gonna to see one next week at the very beginning of chapter 2. Eleven of the twelve times that phrase in the Bible is found in the book of Acts. And seven of those eleven times, it involves Jesus' followers being in unity together. Sometimes you find it with Jesus' enemies being in unity together. But seven of the eleven times is Jesus' followers in unity together. It's exactly how we find it here. And that's what I mean when I say they were partnering in prayer. They weren't spread apart, praying by themselves. They weren't in disagreement. No, they were together praying in unity with one accord. And there's a great lesson there for us because that is exactly how we need to be as well. And we should be that way all the time, but certainly when we're waiting on the Lord. And listen, tonight is a great opportunity to do just that. We have our prayer night, and I tell you every time, I wish everybody would come back. Is that important for what we're doing? Because we all need to be together with one accord, praying with one mind, 
And, and listen, God, I'm going to show you even in this passage, God takes note of that when that happens. There is great power in the unity of the brethren. You might know Psalm 133, verse 1. Behold how good and how pleasant it is for brethren to dwell together in unity. And I want you to notice the exclamation mark at the end of that verse. God wants to get our attention with that point. And there's just something special about being unified together in mission, to be with one accord, which means unanimous. It's where we're all on the same page, plowing the same field in the same direction. Amos 3.3, can two walk together except they be agreed? The obvious answer to that rhetorical question is no. And this principle is just especially true in the church. But in the church, listen, what is that unity, that accord, that agreement, what is it based upon? What is the foundation of our unity? Well, the foundation is doctrine. I want you to listen to what Paul told the believers in, in Corinth in 1 Corinthians 1.10. And this was a church that was not in unity, and he's, he is ridiculing them. He is rebuking them for that. He says, now I beseech you, brethren, I beg you, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that ye all speak the same thing, and that there be no divisions among you, that ye be perfectly joined together, and listen to how he ends this, in the same mind and in the same judgment. You see what joins us together in unity is having the same mind and the same judgment. And just a very quick study of 1 Corinthians chapter 2 will tell you that the mind of Christ today is found in his word. This is the mind. We hold it. We have his mind for us today in his word. And we make the same judgments as we denounce private interpretation and we just let God be true and every man a liar. And we let the Bible be self-defining and self-interpreting. So we're straight on how we are judging things based on the righteous judgments of this book. So we become straight on doctrine because we let the word of God judge us instead of us judging it. Psalm 119 verse 160 says, Thy word is true from the beginning, and every one of thy righteous judgments endureth forever. And honestly, in a church, that's the only way we can have true unity, is to be of the same mind with what God's word says, making the same judgments. You know, ecumenical movement cries for unity and diversity. Right, that, that's what you hear today, diversity and inclusion. It's not possible based on the biblical definition of unity. But when we are unified on the biblical front, then we can partner in prayer and it becomes very, very powerful. Because when we have the same mind, we make the same judgments on God's word, Listen, God takes note of that. When we are on the same page as him, our prayers become very powerful. Matthew 18, verses 19 and 20 says, Again, I say unto you that if two of you shall what agree on earth as touching anything that they shall ask, it shall be done for them and my Father which is in heaven. For where two or three are gathered together in my name, there am I in the midst of them. And this is exactly how the apostles were functioning in Acts chapter 1. They weren't fighting no, they were on the same page. They had been taught the same things by Jesus and they believed him the same. They had all seen him. They believed the same things on the resurrection. And they were all together. They were all in together on the mission. So while they waited, they prayed. Now listen, this prayer of unity even included Jesus' mother, and his half-brothers, that's the other children that Mary had. That's what is being talked about at the end of verse 14. Mary, the mother of Jesus, with his brethren, would have been his physical brothers. Obviously, their half-brothers have the same mother. They do not have the same father. And, and I, I say this, this is noteworthy for a couple of reasons. First of all, it's noteworthy because this is the last mention of Mary in the Bible. And it's nothing It's nothing special. There's no special recognition of Mary. In fact, no place is there ever worship of Mary in the Bible. 
She's never honored in prayer or deed. No one mentions her immaculate conception or her perpetual virginity. In fact, this verse dispels any truth to a perpetual virginity doctrine related to Mary because the brethren, again, are his physical half-brothers. Mary was their mom too. And then it's also noteworthy because these brothers weren't exactly on Team Jesus during the time of his earthly ministry. Because speaking of these guys, look at what John, 5 says, John 7 and verse 5 says. For neither did his brethren believe in him. And, and that's who the context of that is, is his half-brothers there. And listen, we might think that's crazy. You know, we might be like, what in the world? These guys, they lived with him, and, and they didn't believe in him. But listen, I think I can have some sympathy, because imagine growing up with Jesus as your brother. <laughs> listen, I, I had enough trouble getting compared to my older brother. You know, couldn't you just be more like Kevin? Well, no, I can't be more like Kevin, let alone had it been Jesus. Can you just be a little bit more like Jesus? Why don't you do what Jesus did? I mean, listen, he had a bit of an unfair advantage. I mean, no, he was tempted like all of us. I know that. And so I'm sure it would have been awesome being related to Jesus. But, you know, it might have had a couple drawbacks. But now they believed. And now they're partnering in prayer with the 120 who God used to turn the world upside down. Those that were present. In Acts chapter 2 that we'll see next week. And all of this, this whole thing that we're talking about, it's all foreshadowed in the Old Testament. And what is true, you know, Romans 15 talks about it, 1 Corinthians 10. What is true in the Old Testament, or what is true in the New Testament, is pictured in the Old Testament. And you, you see that over and over and over again. It's just amazing and beautiful. And I want to show you the companion passage in the Old Testament. We're also going to look at it next week also. It was at the dedication of Solomon's temple. In 2 Chronicles chapter 5. A temple, and, and, and listen to me, that pictured the very presence of God. Alright? And in 2 Chronicles chapter 5, look with me starting in verse 11. This is the dedication of Solomon's temple. And it came to pass when the priests were come out of the holy place, for all the priests that were present were sanctified and did not then wait by course. Also the Levites, which were the singers, all of them of Asaph, of Heman, of Jejuthun, and their sons and their brethren, being arrayed in white linen, having cymbals and psalteries and harps, stood at the end, east end of the altar, and with them an hundred and twenty priests sounding with trumpets. Okay, how many, how many priests were there? There's 120, Okay. And it came to pass as the trumpeters and singers were, what? As one. To make one sound. To be heard in praising and thanking the Lord. And when they lifted up their voice with the trumpets and cymbals and instruments of music. And praised the Lord saying, for he is good. For his mercy endureth forever. And then the house was filled with a cloud. Even the house of the Lord. So that the priest could not stand to minister by reason of the cloud, for the glory of the Lord had filled the house of God. You see, what is happening here at the dedication of the temple was that 120 priests were present praising before the Lord filled the house of God. And what we see in Acts chapter 1, and again, we'll see more of it next week, is, is 120 disciples were present praying before the Lord filled his New Testament house. Listen, you just can't beat this book, man. You can't beat this book. And by the way, the connections there don't stop. I'm just saving, like I said, I'm saving some for next week. But I mention this, and I, I, I bring this to your attention because God's presence is found when people are partnering and praising and praying together with one accord. As one. You see that in the Old Testament. You see that in the New Testament. And it's not that the praying itself brought in the Lord's glory with the temple or the Holy Spirit at Pentecost. They didn't. Those were based on God's promises, not the people's prayers. But don't be deceived. God absolutely notices. And it pleases him. And it brings him glory when his people are unified together with the same mind, praying over the same things with one accord about the mission. 
And those prayers not only bring the people in unity with each other, they bring the people in unity with God. Because in those situations, we're, we're just praying for God's will. We're praying his word back to him. The Bible doesn't say what they were praying about, but I bet you it had something to do with the Holy Spirit coming. I bet you it had something to do for the promise they had been given. They were just praying God's words back to him. And what a beautiful thing that is. There is so much good that comes from partnering in prayer. So I'd love to see you tonight so we can do it together. And that's the first key to waiting on the Lord that we see from his disciples. And the second, we also see them, when they were partnering in prayer, we also see them submitting to Scripture. That's our second point, they were submitting to Scripture. Because after they prayed, Peter got up and started talking. And he laid out some Bible for them. Look at verse 15. And in those days, Peter stood up in the midst of, his disciple, of the disciples and said, the number of names together were about 120, men and brethren, this scripture must needs have been fulfilled. I think we heard a little bit about that phrase, right, at our REACH conference, must needs, Jesus must needs go. Well, here the scripture must needs have been fulfilled, which the Holy Ghost by the mouth of David spake before concerning Judas, which was guide to them that took Jesus. Judas is the one that sold Jesus out. For he was numbered with us and had obtained part of this ministry. Now this man purchased a field with the reward of iniquity, and falling headlong, he burst asunder in the midst, and all his bowels gushed out. And it was known unto all the dwellers at Jerusalem, and so much as that field is called in their proper tongue, a seldoma, that is to say, the field of blood. For it is written in the book of Psalms, let his habitation be desolate, let no man dwell therein, and his bishopric let another take. And this is really for the first time where we see Peter step up into that leadership role. That's the role we talked about when I introduced the book and gave you the key players, you know, Peter being one of them, the, the key player at the beginning of this book, while it's still focused on Jerusalem, still focused on Jewish church, uh, Peter's the leader. And when Peter steps into this leadership role, what is he doing? He starts quoting scripture. And he starts quoting scripture about Judas Iscariot and how he needs to be replaced in his bishopric, his office, his apostleship. And Peter quotes two different psalms of David in verse 20. First, he quotes Psalm 69, 25 that says, Let their habitation be desolate, and let none dwell in their tents. And this is a prophecy of Judas's removal. We're not going to take time to dive into all of it, but this is a prophecy of Judas' removal. Then he also quotes Psalm 109, verse 8, and this is a prophecy of Judas' replacement. Let his days be few, and let another take his office. So Peter addresses the betrayal and the death of Judas, one of the original apostles. And he argues from Scripture that the election of a new apostle is necessary to take Judas's place. That, that office needs to be filled because there needs to be 12 and not 11. And that's because according to Matthew 19 and verse 28, there will be 12 thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. And Jesus said unto them, Verily I say unto you, that he which have followed me in the regeneration, when the Son of Man shall sit in the throne of his glory, ye also shall sit upon twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And they were now sitting at eleven. So, so that position needed to be filled. And the prophecy of, of Matthew 19.28 helped Peter determine part of the qualification of the replacement. We'll see that in the next point. It, it couldn't just be anybody. It had to be somebody that was there from the beginning. I'll, I'll show you that. But the point is, Scripture prophesied about and required replacement. So Peter told the 120 they needed to submit to God's Word. While we're waiting, we have some work to do here. And it's important to note that it was not the death of Judas that brought the need for a replacement. It was his defection. It's not the death of Judas. It was his defection. And I say that because if you go later on in the book of Acts, in Acts 12, verse 2, we see the apostle James martyred by Herod. And there's no, there's no you know, movement to replace him. No, his position was set. It wasn't, I mean, obviously they all died. We see James die in, in the book of Acts. So it had nothing to do with the death. This was all about Judas's defection. 
And, and it was a defection that he never made right. And some commentators, some more liberal theologians will say that Judas did repent before he actually committed suicide. And I mean, you just have to ignore what the Bible says to get that. I mean, it, it says he repented, but his repentance was only based on the fact that Jesus was an innocent man, humanly speaking. It wasn't based on the fact that Jesus was the Son of God. Look at Matthew, look at the exact words of Matthew 27, verses 3 and 4. Then Judas, when he had betrayed him, when he saw that he was condemned, repented himself, brought again the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and elders, saying, I have sinned and that I have betrayed the innocent blood. And they said, what is that to us? See that of that. Judas never had a godly sorrow. It was a worldly sorrow. Plus, listen, we should know this. Jesus told the disciples and he told us the truth about Judas. We can know exactly who Judas was and what he was. In John chapter 6, verses 70 and 71, Jesus answered them, Have not I chosen you twelve, and one of you is a devil? He spake of Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon. For he it was that should betray him, being one of the twelve. And we don't have time to dive into all the doctrinal truth related to Judas and how he's actually going to show back up. But, but let me say this. It's no coincidence that this discourse about Judas beginning in, in, in verse 15, did, did you see how verse 15 starts? In those days. In those days, Peter, and then it goes on for there, from there. And, and, and those of you that know, those days, that phrase in the Bible is, is referring to the tribulation period, doctrinally. Additionally, one of the places Peter quoted here in Acts chapter 1 is Psalm 109. Right? We looked at that just a few minutes ago. That entire passage is actually 14 verses. It stretches from verse 6 to verse 19. is prophetically about the Antichrist. So, for example, this is, this is what the Bible says about the Antichrist. Psalm 109 verse 18 says, And he clothed himself with cursing, like as with his garment. So let it come into his bowels like water, like oil into his bones. And I show you that verse because we can compare it with Leviathan in Job chapter 40, verse 18. It says, his bones are as strong pieces of brass. His bones are like bars of iron. All right, so you got oil into his bones, and you got his bones are like bars of iron. And we don't have time to go into the connection between oil and iron, iron ore, but know that they are the top two naturally produced commodities in the world. I mean, you might be able to say, they kind of run this world system. Oil and iron ore. And they're found underground. I mean, you, you find them really, really deep underground. Did I mention that both of the verses I quoted were verse 18? Or 6 plus 6 plus 6? I'm sure it's a coincidence. And listen, we could go on and on. We just don't have time for that. But if you're interested, sign up for our Acts LFBI class that we'll have next year. We'll get into more of this stuff. But now getting back to our main focus, suffice it to say that there were never any pure motives with Judas. Don't be fooled by what some might say about him. But then also take, note, take a note of warning regarding Judas, because Peter had some very interesting things to say about him. And it starts in verse 17. This is a super interesting verse. Acts 1:17. speaking of Judas, the Bible says, for he was numbered with us and had obtained part of this ministry. And just practically, very, just devotionally, there's a church lesson here. And we must be aware that everyone that is with us it's not necessarily for us. And there are people in churches all over this country, likely even in ours, that are like Judas. And they're numbered with us. They're members. And they've even obtained part of the ministry. Maybe we're active for a while, but listen, they're not saved. We should all take note of that as we protect the ministry that God has given us. And be cognizant of things that look weird. So there's a church lesson there. But there's also a personal lesson with respect to Judas. Verse 18 says he purchased a field with the reward of iniquity. We see the name of the field here. Acts chapter 1 is, is the field of blood. 
because it was bought with blood money. Like if you compare the Matthew 27, it, it, it actually says it actually occurred after Judas' death. But it was, his, it was bought with the money that he sold out Jesus for. It was bought with blood money. It's also where Judas' own blood was spilled. We see that here. Again, you can read about the details of that in Matthew chapter 27. You can see prophecies of that, more details like in Zechariah chapter 11. But I want you to take particular note of the, the purchasing of a field. Because we see that phrasing in different contexts in the Bible. For example, speaking of the virtuous woman, a picture of how the church should be. We read this in, in Proverbs 31, 16. She considereth a field and buyeth it. And with the fruit of her hand she planteth a vineyard. And, and that's a very, very good thing. What Judas did was a very, very bad thing. And we learned about this at the Reach Conference. The, the Bible says the field is the world. That's what Matthew 13, 38 says very explicitly. So just from a very devotional, practical standpoint, I, I just want to bring this together for you. What that means is we can buy a field for good reasons or bad. We can buy it because we're all about the mission and we're giving our life to that and we're going all in on the mission like the virtuous woman. Or we can buy a field with the reward of iniquity like Judas. So I guess from, from, just from a personal perspective, let me ask you, what, what field have you purchased? Are you sold out to the mission or are you sold out to the world? Have you purchased a field to fight for it and to evangelize it? Or have you purchased a field to just play in? Do you view the world as a mission field or just a field of fun? There's two ways to look at this. And there are two ways to live your life. And at the end of the day, you have to choose. We obviously, listen, we're all good Laodiceans, so we try to ride the middle. And we want the best of both worlds. But God doesn't let us off that easy, unfortunately. It says it makes him want to vomit. We know this, Revelation 3, verses 15 and 16. I know thy works, thou art neither cold nor hot. I would. I, I wish you'd go one way or the other. I would that thou wert cold or hot. So thou, because thou art lukewarm, just right in the middle, and neither cold nor hot, I will spew thee out of my mouth. You see, God doesn't let us get away with it. So why don't you choose his way and get hot about the mission? You see, there's a personal lesson to learn from Judas as well. Judas is someone we do not want to emulate. I, I, I think we're all clear on that. What we want to do instead is submit to Scripture and give our life to purchasing a field based upon what God has called us to do in the mission and give our life to that. And give our life to making disciples. This is what Peter was about. This is what Peter was instructing them. So as we've seen, the keys to waiting on the Lord include partnering in prayer. They include submitting to Scripture. And the last key is that they just take the next step. This is just very simple because third, we see them working God's will. They just worked God's will. They had heard what God's will was from Peter, according to Scripture. They submitted to it in their hearts. But it's one thing to, to believe God's word in, you know, in, in your head and understand it intellectually. It's another thing to then go do it and to go live it. Those are two separate things. You can show up every Sunday, every Wednesday night, whatever, and agree with what we talk about. But then if you don't go live it, how much do you actually believe it? So once you understand, once you submit to God's word in your heart, okay, then you got to go work it. you got to go work God's will. Look at verse 21. Wherefore, of these men, which have accompanied with us all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John, and to the same day that he was taken up from us, must one be ordained to be a witness with us of the resurrection. They, we got to replace him. And they appointed two. So they just start working it. They start doing it. They start obeying. They appointed two. Joseph called Barsabas, who was surnamed Justice, and Matthias. And they prayed and said, Thou, Lord, which knowest the hearts of all men, show whether of these two thou hast cho chosen, 
that he may take part of this ministry and apostleship from which Judas by transgression fell, that he might go into his own place. Which that, you know, that's a whole, that phrase right there, that Judas go into his own, own place is a whole other study that we don't have time for. But if you sign up for our LFBI class, we'll, we'll walk you through that. And they gave forth their lots, and the lot fell upon Matthias, and he was numbered with the 11 apostles. So Peter lays out uh, the criteria for the replacement. And, and according to this passage, there were three requirements that the person had to meet. First, they had to have been there from the beginning, from the Lord's baptism. They needed to have seen the Lord's uh, resurrection, and they needed to have been there and, and seen the Lord's ascension. So whoever it was, they had to have the same exposure to Christ's earthly ministry as the other 11. And these requirements, by the way, is why Paul was not supposed to be the 12th apostle. Some will say that. Some will say Peter actually messed up here, got ahead of the Lord. Paul should have been the 12th. No, that's wrong. Because Paul doesn't meet these requirements. He didn't accompany these guys during Christ's earthly ministry. Paul's not mentioned one time in the Gospels, and his focus was the Gentiles, not the Jews. Paul called himself an apostle born out of due time. 1 Corinthians 15, verses 7 through 9. After that, he was seen of James, then of all the apostles, and last of all, he was seen of me also. Also as one born out of due time, for I am the least of the apostles, and I'm not me to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. So you have to understand, there are actually a lot of apostles in the Bible. So there are the 12, and they hold a special place. But then there's Paul, there's Barnabas, there's others that are called apostles. It's because of the unique ministry that was occurring during the book of Acts. And so Paul wasn't to be the 12th Jewish apostle. No, that, that wasn't his role. He had a different role. It wasn't Paul, but it had to be somebody. And that somebody had to meet those requirements. And of the 120 in the room, I don't know how many of them met the requirements, but they landed on two. Barsabas and Matthias. And they prayed, acknowledging their desire for God's will on who the 12 should be. And they cast lots, and Matthias was chosen by the Lord. And the casting of lots, that gives us a dispensational clue. Because we know, or if you don't know, casting of lots is not for today. We talked about casting lots in some detail when we went through Nehemiah chapter 11. So I'm not going to go through it all now. If you're interested, you can go back and listen to that sermon if you want to know the details. But, but just as a very quick reminder, in the Old Testament, God used the casting of lots as a system to give direction before the Bible was completed. It was one of the few acceptable ways to inquire as to God's will outside of written revelation in the Old Testament dispensation. So today there's one way. We have a completed, preserved, and perfect word of God. It's all we need. It's how God speaks to us today. That obviously wasn't true in the Old Testament times. They didn't have a completed word of God. They had you know, parts of it, but it wasn't completed. So for those apostles, they were still under this Old Testament dispensation. They give, we have the clue. And so this was their way of putting it in God's hands and trusting him. It wasn't wrong for them to do. Proverbs 16, is a definitive passage on how the people of God were to view the casting of lots when it was a legitimate method, way that God communicated with his people. Proverbs 16.33 says, The lot is cast into the lap, but the whole disposing thereof is of the Lord. See, it was a, it was a system that God set up for Israel to trust him to lead them. And that's exactly what the apostles wanted. They wanted God's will in this situation, and they were working it the best way they knew how. And, but it's, it's interesting to note, because of the dispensational shift in the book of Acts, this is the last time we see lots in the Bible. There is no other New Testament example of choosing church leaders by lots. In Acts chapter 6, the deacons were chosen by church members. In Acts 13, the first missionaries were identified by the Holy Spirit and confirmed by the church leaders. But here it was okay. They were just working God's will. And listen, this is applicable for us too, not, not the casting of lots, but just trusting the Lord and trusting his word while we are waiting. And again, that doesn't mean that you do nothing. No, work God's will. What that means is do what you know to do. Just don't step outside of what you don't know and, and do what you don't know yet. 
When you're waiting on an answer and you don't know, man, God, do you want me to do this, this, or this? Well, until you get an answer, do what you know to do. What was the last thing you know God had you doing? Do that until you get an answer from the Lord. And then when you get an answer from the Lord, go do that. And you do that until you know something different. If you don't know, just keep doing what you do know and wait on the rest. See, like I told you at the beginning of this passage, waiting on the Lord is active and not passive, and these apostles nailed it. So we should learn from them. They partnered together in prayer. And that's where we should always start when we're waiting, is going to the Lord in prayer, expressing your dependence upon him, your desire for him to work in your life and in your situation, whatever it is that you're waiting on. And then submit to Scripture. Just obey the Bible. Peter knew what the Old Testament said, so he knew what needed to be done during their time of waiting. And that's something for us to all take note of here. Do you, do you know what the Bible has to say about your particular situation? You need to learn what it says and then submit to it. And then desire and just work God's will. Do what you know to do. And don't do what you're not sure about. And then trust the Lord in the process. And when you take these steps, God will honor it. Just as he did the dedication of the temple, just as he will at Pentecost. Your waiting will be productive, honoring to him. And listen, that's what we're after. That's what we're looking for in our lives and in this church is just to honor him. Honor him with our decisions. Honor him with our life. Honor him with our steps. At least I hope that's what you're looking for. It'll be better for you if that's true of your life, I promise you. So let's have every head bowed and every eye closed. We're, we're finished here this morning. We're obviously going to close out in, in one final song, as, as we always do. And, and so I just ask you in this time of, of meditation to just um, allow the Lord to speak into your life. And if, if you're in a time of waiting, man, you have some instruction on what to do from here. Partner in prayer. Come back tonight. We need to be praying together. Submit to what his word has to say. Work what you know. God has you working. Very, very simple. Very simple, very practical steps. Now, if you're in a place where, first of all, you don't know the Lord as your Savior, and there's never been a time that you placed your faith in his finished work on the cross as a sacrifice for your sins personally, not just the sins of the world, but for yours. And you've not had a moment in your life where you did that and you placed your faith in him and told him and asked him to come into your heart, into your life and save you. Man, you should do that this morning. You should just ask him. You should do it. It's very simple. God makes it easy. If you have questions about that, just come forward during the song. We'll be glad to take the Bible and show you what it means. Uh, what to be saved and, and, and how to be saved. But if you are saved and you know the Lord, and, but you're just not living for him, man, why don't you start today? Join us in the mission. Uh, we're going somewhere, and we're trying to follow the Lord in it. Come jump. Jump on, jump on with us. There's, there's room for you, I promise.